You're listening to the B&H Photography Podcast. For over 40 years, B&H has been the professional source for photography, video, audio, and more. For your favorite gear, news, and reviews, visit us at bnh.com or download the B&H app to your iPhone or Android device. Now here's your host, Alan Weitz. Greetings and welcome to the B&H Photography Podcast. Today we present a conversation with veteran news editorial and all-around incredible documentary photographer, Steve Simon. And after a break, we're going to continue with our special serial program, Dispatch with Adrienne O'Hanison, as she concludes the harrowing story of her assignment at the Okapi Wildlife Reserve in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. But first, Al's gearhead pick of the week. This week's gearhead pick is a neat line of t T-shirts, caps, and hoodies we recently began selling. Tog Tees, that's T-O-G-T-E-E-S, produces a wonderful line of retro-styled photography-themed T-shirts, caps, and a range of colors. My favorite include ISO 800, a little great logo that says photography since 1827, and an 18% gray cap with Sunny 16 written across it in a stylish script. Depending on the item, colors include black and white, safe light red, blue hour, gold hour, sepia, Green screen, 18% gray, twilight, night sky, silver halide, cyanotype, and monochrome. How could you not love it? They're a ton of fun. Check them out. That's TogTees at bnhphoto.com. Steve Simon has covered events near and far, but whether he is photographing the streets of New York, covering the impact of HIV in Africa, or the great work he's done at the Democratic and Republican conventions, his work is always imbued with compassion, humor, and noted for its technical excellence. A quick glance at his site, thepassionatephotographer.com, or any of his five published books will reveal his humanity, his understanding of light, and the ability to compose a moment into beauty. Steve also knows his gear, especially his Nikons, and we speak with him about the many cameras he uses, the workshops he hosts, and the passion that he cultivates for photography. Here's Steve. Okay, we're here with Paul Simon. He's going to tell us about his newest list. Oh, wait a second. I'm sorry. No, no, no. That's tomorrow's episode. He's going to do a couple of songs for my new album. I get that all the time. No, all joking. We're here with Steve Simon, okay? Who the passionate is photographer. The passionate photographer who is the photographic version of the musical Paul Simon, okay? I'll take it. You got that, okay? That's a high compliment. How, can I just jump in? Shouldn't Please. all photographers be passionate? Ooh. I think all photographers are passionate. I mean, you know, what? what who's going to wake up at four in the morning to capture the sunrise That's and no one's paying you to point. do that? I mean, <laughs> right. You got to have the passion for, for that. And how do you define it? I just think it's something you kind of have to do. I mean, it's something that somehow uh, you discovered and there's no looking back. You know, you, you're doing it for life. You're, you're constantly sort of pushing it to see how far you can go in terms of your own photography because, you know, I, I think the best is yet to come. I don't think it's an age thing. I think, you know, wherever you are, wherever you start, you want to see how far you can take it. And once you're, you know, you're bitten by that shutter bug, uh, that, that passion um, never goes away. And it, it's a, a huge blessing, I think, because as a photographer, I, I think we uh, see the world uh, a little bit more, uh, you know, we're looking. We're always, we're, we can't turn it off. We're always seeing. We what was the first thing hands. that hit you, the passion or the photography? Because you, you're like an eight-year-old and you <laughs> see your auntie. You, you seriously, yeah, you, you're, yeah. it's in and, you. And you what was it? When, when did that yeah. When did well, you realize it was for life? You know, for me, I think it was, uh, I was 11 years old. And, okay. You know, I, I started out, and I think it was a little bit of the, the stuff, you know, the equipment. I'm a little bit of a geek. Of course, you know, obviously it's about the images, and, and, and I followed my camera into these extraordinary situations and, and, and places uh, in my photographic life. But I think as an 11-year-old, I, I just was enamored with the, the thing, the camera. And, and I think photography is such a, a wonderful thing in the sense that, you know, it's physical. It means you have to get out into the world and breathe the air. It's also technical. You've got to learn some of the technical stuff and, and the artifact, the tool. It's kind of cool with all the buttons and dials. And then there's, um, you know, the creative aspect of it. I mean, Absolutely. it's just unlimited what you can do with this. And the thing. human so, interaction. I mean, let's. Well, that's it. That and I, I think I was kind of a shy person growing up. And I think that a lot of photographers, I always asked uh, people in my workshops, you know, were you, are you, you consider yourself a shy person? And I think that. Uh, a lot of them raise their hands. Some of them are too shy to raise their hands, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah. But I think that when you grow up shy, it means you're an observer. And I think it's good training ground for photographers. And I think a lot of us have that as part of their personality. We're able to 
we're able to observe, we, we see things just maybe a little bit, a uh, little clearer. Yeah, yeah, no, I would say that's true. I would say that's true. And uh, can you remember back to that camera you had when you were 11? Do you know which one it was? I well, mean, you yes. said you were a bit of a geek, so of course. let's talk of course. Well, <laughs> you know, the, the object of my uh, desire was a Zenit, uh, I think it was Zenit E, a Russian camera. Uh, yeah, yeah, you know, I was yeah. living in Canada at the time. But I ended up upgrading. By the time I had the money and really did the research, I you had bought a, a seagull. Uh, no, I didn't <laughs> buy a seagull. It, I do remember it, Yashica TL Electro X. Oh, yeah. And that was my first camera. But soon after, I became a Nikon guy, and then I've never looked back. I think the Nikon FM was my you know, first serious camera that I saved up all my money for and never looked back. And now? And now have? I got all the toys. You know, I justify it. I'm a professional. It's right. tax deductible. I live not far from B&H. So I've got uh, the D5, the D500. I've got a, you know, because I'm... The 500 I'm, also? So you, you go back for full frame and APS-C? I, I, I do. Uh -huh. I do. I, I'm constantly sort of switching things up a little bit. And, and what would what would mean... I mean, what day would you bring out the D500? Or, or what, what kind of determines what you use? That's a good question. I have to admit, I, I think that... Um, as a full framer, um, you know, the D500 was something that for me and the work that I do as a street photographer, documentary photographer was not something all that necessary for me. I tend to shoot uh, prime lenses, you know, 35, 50, 50, I'm sorry, 35, 58 is kind of my, my, my main lenses. But, um, you know, I picked one up just as, uh, um, just because I could. But I, I think I'm more <laughs> of a, you know, the, the D810 and the, the D5 are kind of my go-to cameras. Um, are you attracted to mirrorless at any point in time? Has it cued your interest? Well, I mean, I... Of course, I'm, I'm watching it closely. Now, because I've kind of sold my soul to Nikon, I, I, I work with Nikon, I right. do some work with them, so I, I stick with them as a brand. I'm waiting for uh, you know, something from them in the market. You know, for me, the measure of a little mirrorless camera, and it's not about you know, the sensor size, et cetera, it's just that if I can pull this out of my pocket, see an incredible visual potential situation, work it a little bit, get an image that I'm happy with, and then I could insert that image seamlessly into my portfolio, make a decent-sized print, have it appear in a book or something. Uh, as a professional, you know, that's perfect. That's, that's what I need. That's what I right. want. And, you know, I think that that's what the mirrorless is, is doing. I still believe the sweet spot, though, is the DSLR in terms of speed, autofocus, etc. And even as a street photographer carrying the bigger camera with me, um, I've learned to use it. I, I would like to have something a little smaller, a little more more discreet. But um, oh, it's an excellent camera. No two ways yeah, about it. Yeah. yeah. Now you, we were talking lenses. Just as one question, you were thirty five fifty. That's is there one that's kind of your? I mean, if we have to say thirty five fifty, which is it going to be? Yeah. No, I, I think that uh, for me, um, if I were to be. Um, I think the 35 focal length on a full-frame camera for me is kind of my sweet spot. It was when I was a kid with my Nikon FM roaming the streets of Montreal taking street shots. Um, it still is today. I feel that it's wide enough to tell more of the story, um, but it also allows you to get in close and uh, not distort and have very impactful uh, images from it. And then the other camera that I, the other lens I've been really falling in love with is the 58. And for whatever reason, I've never been a fan of the 50. Yeah. But somehow the 58, that extra eight millimeters, really has made a huge difference. And to the point where, you know, I would have my 35 and 85, but now I'm actually thinking of getting rid of my 85. I don't, I think that'd be great for commercial stuff, but I don't do a lot of that. The 58, for me, feels a lot more natural, feels a lot more comfortable. I like being actually closer to the situation. Do you find that works in, for portraits in a way that the 35 won't, where you can really get that, that yeah, eye, that, I, those eyes? I that really you do. And, you know, when I talk portrait, I talk more of the passionate portrait. And by that, I mean, I'm not out to flatter. I'm certainly not out to make anyone look bad. But I, I feel that the um, closeness of being physically close to, to my subject with a 58 allows me for a very sort of uh, strong connection that I think ultimately is communicated and translated in the photograph in a different way than an 85 is. And, and the 58 is also just that little narrower, you get a little more compression. The 50, you get too close, it could start distorting a little bit. You gotta be careful with the 50 close range in yeah. portrait. 58s, you, you could start playing with it a little it bit. It really now. is, and I, I don't know what magic is uh, in play there, but honestly, um, I never really kind of did any kind of testing. I just picked it up, started using it, and the results that I was getting with the 58, um, for me, kind of had an 85 feel in terms of the compression, I'll, I'll not, not as much. 
But the connection that you get when you're physically close to your subject... It's different um, than two feet away than three and a half feet away. It really is. Yeah. It really yeah. makes the a difference. connection is different. Yeah. You lose it. Yeah. Yeah. Can I ask about, uh, about street photography? Now, I, uh, that's kind of what I love to do. And yeah. there was a time that, you know, I just put the camera on the neck and hit the street. And that's all I needed. Yes. Not so much anymore. Now I kind of feel the need to have a theme or a project uh, or something. Is that, do you still, can you just still open the door and go for a walk and, and feel yeah. like you're doing your thing? I mean, for me, you know, that's the biggest joy is the sort of serendipitous walk with my camera. But the one thing I've learned over the years, you know, coming from a journalistic background is that when you go out with an idea, you know, it may be a theme, it may be a place, maybe it's one street corner and you start to shoot in that place um, and create a set of pictures and spill them out on the table, you realize sometimes, or I've realized that, you know, maybe I'm making the same picture over and over again. So how do I dig a little deeper? How do I peel the onion and, and, and get something even stronger? So by having an idea about a theme or, or kind of a story or, you know, just any kind of idea to create a set of pictures where each picture has to be strong, but the sum is greater than the parts. What you can communicate in a set is very different. Um, I think that for a lot of photographers, that's a great way to kind of push them to the next level. Um, so, so I'm of two, two minds. Sometimes I just go out and enjoy and let things you know, happen uh, the way they are. But I do find that when I have sort of a target in mind and an idea, um, that leads to, you know, your original idea always changes, but it gets better and it gets better. You see what works and you see what, what doesn't. And then suddenly you're led into a place that you never would have got to had you just gone out and really had no agenda, right. which is still kind of a nice idea. It's fun. Yeah. 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 You, now, you, you mentioned something that's interesting about, you know, are you taking the same picture over and over and over again? Having taken photographs for decades, I can tell you right now that I've only taken about three, maybe four different photographs my entire life, just that the subject matter changes, but I'm framing them the same way, composing and approaching the same way. That's a challenge. Do you find yourself in that too? Yes, yes, I definitely. mean, I, I call it a visual signature, and I think everybody has one. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. And I think that, you know, sometimes we're too close to it, so we yeah. don't see it, but it's very obvious to me when I look at your work and, and probably vice versa. I think that... Um, that's part of the sort of growth thing that I feel that, um, you know, you got to get out of the comfort zone to a little bit, to a certain extent. And I tell this to my students, but I also tell it to myself in that, um, you know, there, there's a certain sort of comfort level of, you know, picking up the camera, standing up certain distance to your subject and taking those pictures. And of course, when there's great content in front of you, you know, that's, that's going to lead to some strong well, photographs. Well, it's the same thing like a songwriter. I mean, there's some people you hear three notes and you know who did it. Exactly. They're, exactly. It, they're signatures, and I think that's part of it. But is the, is, the, is the question to try to perfect that yeah. vision or to stop imitating else? Find yeah. exactly yeah, I mean, walking away. Yeah. Exactly. I think there's two ways to do it. I mean, I think there's a strength in terms of the momentum of, you know, that same idea being replicated with different content. And there's a power in that, uh, in that journey that you take the viewer from, you know, these pictures in these different places from the same visionary that took them. And then there's the idea of, mixing it up a little bit so you know you know moving in close and seeing what you can do in close and i think that i i call it the compositional dance so whenever possible i try and move around and, and do things that i've never done come back and and see what i've got and when things work you know that gets infused into my uh, process and and workflow and ultimately that signature and thumbprint i think is still there even though it's kind of a new yeah. way of doing things so I mean, it, we're talking kind of a little bit abstract, very interesting, um, but I, I think that, um, you know, again, it's that growth thing. And just because, um, you know, I've done something a certain way, I, I, I like the idea. I'm always inspired by looking at everybody else and, you know, hearing things. And for me, in my photographic life, I, I get one little nugget from one person, and that you know, brings yeah. me to a new oh, level, yeah. and that's what this is all about. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not memorizing everybody's uh, stuff. No, no. And, uh, well, I, I can just, on the podcast note, I mean, we pull out, I pull out a nugget of almost every conversation, and, yeah. and, and it's just wonderful. I mean, the things you can pick yes. up, and you try, if you have time. If you have time. time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the editing yeah, thing. Yeah. I know yeah. for me, the jolter, I'm a sucker for wide-angle lenses, and every once in a while, I, I take out a 90-millimeter lens, which I have problems with. 
Yes. And I say, okay, you're stuck with this for a few days. Go play now. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think that's a great exercise. Yeah, Absolutely. just break it. I do it. And sometimes I'll do exactly the same thing. I'll, you know, you're, it's, it's kind of a, a leap to go out with a, a 90 or a 85 or a 58 and not have the wide because you're, of course, going to encounter that incredible, you know, 28 millimeter shot that you won't be able to get. But I think in my experience, when I do that, I'm not even looking in that way. I'm, I'm sort of, I know what the focal length is, so I'm sort of after a different kind mm -hmm. of image that ultimately I wouldn't even see if I had my 35 millimeter on there. So I, I think that's a no, good are, exercise. Are you the type that will, will be kicking yourself all day for missing that 28, or you no. just let it go? <laughs> no, no, I, I let it go. Yeah. I let it go because uh, I, 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 I'm sure I would have gotten some, some great shots with the 90 or the 85 that I, I never would have had if I had just had the 35, so yeah. Um, I'd love to eventually talk about some political shooting and, and yeah. some of that stuff, but I, sure. my, my kind of stock question for today is um, art versus documentary. And, and when does a documentary photography be, photograph become an art photograph? Well, that's, that's a and, really, and how do you think about that when you're yeah, doing documentary yeah. work? I mean, I, I think that for me, the way I separate it is, you know, the documentary photograph is... is something that is truthful, and you can't see my finger quotes going on here, but I mean, truth is obviously in the, is a subjective thing. Mm -hmm. But I believe that, you know, a documentary photograph should not really be manipulated beyond, and it's a little bit old school, beyond kind of the, the sort of journalistic constraints of, you know, what they, we used to do in the dark room, you kids, you know, ask your grandparents what a dark room is. But to make <laughs> how, things, how old do you think to I am? Make things, <laughs> to make things lighter, darker, correct the color, and so on. But it's not moving pixels around. It's not yeah. getting rid of something. You know, the life is is imperfect, and mm -hmm. I think a documentary photograph sometimes could be stronger because it's imperfect to a certain degree. Does it need to have the 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 classic elements of of light and composition? Or does it not? Yeah, I think, you know, often it does. But then again, you know, sometimes it doesn't. I think that in documentary, often it's the content that's most important. So, you know, even an, uh, a sort of fuzzy, out-of-focus image, once you understand what this image is of this incredible situation that happened, you know, that has a power beyond, you know, seeing everything clearer. And I think, as you guys might feel the same way, sometimes pictures that ask questions are, are much more interesting than pictures that give all the answers kind of thing. But then art, you know, documentary, I think, is, is a, a poor cousin. I think the art world kind of anoints certain things and, and allows those photographs to become very expensive and, and so on. But there's a lot of great journalistic, documentary, beautiful imagery. And some of it is beautiful in an because it's so ugly in terms of what it's capturing, but it's powerful. But for whatever reason, I think documentary photographers do it, you know, as we talked earlier about passion, they don't do it for money. Um, but I think that uh, documentary should be, should have a higher elevation in the fine art world, which it doesn't have. I would agree, 100%. And speaking of journalism, can we talk a bit about your journalistic work and, and, sure. some, and the campaigns and, yeah, and some yeah, of the yeah. stuff you've done? I mean, yeah. we could probably do a whole episode yeah. on that. Well, fact, I thought about that because right after the election, we thought about calling right. in some, some campaign photographers. So, yeah, yeah. so who did you follow? How, did you, okay. how was your 2016? Well, since 2004, I've, I've photographed the, the, just the conventions, that week mm -hmm. of a convention, starting here in New York in 2004 okay. with my Nikon D70, uh -huh. with my two gig, $200 <laughs> CF cards that I bought at B&H. Can I still return them? That was yeah. 2004. Oh, yeah, yeah. As long as you have the packaging, okay, it's all I intact. Think, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, sure. No problem. Have. Just leave the photos if, on them. And right, if right, we right. don't, just bring it to Nordstrom's. They'll okay, take them. All right. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I, I just, you know, I think because I'm a Canadian, I know I'm a proud American, mm -hmm. but, you know, I started out, I was a Canadian back then, and I was fascinated with American politics. So I, you know, for me, it's a great assignment. It's one week, it's intense. I could devote myself completely to it. And since then, 28, 2012, and now 2016. Mm. And I, I figured I would, you know, end things in 2016. Kind of, you never really end a project. You kind of abandon it at some point. But yeah. I thought 2016, with the craziness, this would be a good way to sort of seal the deal yeah. and maybe do a book. And it was, it did not disappoint. I, bet, I mean, I, I was in Cleveland <laughs> yeah. for the Republican right, convention, right, right. Philly for the Democratic convention. Right. And, you know, as a photographer, my first decision was I was going to go black and white. Of course, I'm shooting all digital, but I wanted to get rid of the, the, the references of color, like red is Republican, blue, which there's a lot Did of. Did you shoot color or just convert? I converted because, okay. yeah, better to, you yeah, know, yeah, have yeah. the full file. I'm just file. curious, okay. But what I did do on my Nikons is I put my picture control to um, monochrome. 
so that even though I was shooting raw color files, when I looked at the review screen from time to time, I would sort of, I'd see the monochrome, get a sense of what things were doing. That's the in way terms I would do it. Scale. I understand. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that worked out really well. And, you know, for me, I, I was really wanting to, my sort of thing was to kind of show things that maybe the regular media wasn't showing. So, you know, behind the scenes, behind the curtains, if is you will. Is it easy to, to do that these days? I mean, access is definitely restricted. It, it always was. Now, I'm not sort of a, a big player in terms of access. There are photographers. Usually it's judged by, you know, how much uh, circulation you bring to uh, the story. So, obviously, the wire services, the big papers would have a different kind of access than, than I would, you know, just... At first shooting for a magazine in Canada, and then actually my blog got me my, my oh, yeah. accreditation. Oh, okay. But here's the thing. I just needed to get behind the scenes. I didn't, need, I didn't want to be on the podium to get the clear shot of you know, the president's speech. And there's no real bad place to be because in terms of the story I was telling, I wanted to be among the delegates. I wanted to be in places that uh, you wouldn't normally see in photographs. And I would just use my abilities to try and make an interesting shot of wherever I was. So... In some ways, there was an advantage, but it's also a little bit um, stressful in the sense that the floor is kind of where you want to be, as crowded as it gets. And as the conventions start to you know, crescendo toward the end, access gets more restricted. You're only there for 20 minutes, then you've got to go back in line and refresh your pass. So if you're not on the floor when something's happening, that can be very frustrating. It's like trying to park by a four-second meter in Manhattan. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly yeah. it. Wow. Now, when you're doing the behind the scenes... Um, do you interact with the people much, or do you try to just be a fly on yeah, the wall? Let's say there's a scenario over here playing yeah. out. Do you? I'm a fly on the wall, and, and that's the beauty of it. I could be a fly on the wall. Like on the street, when I'm normally shooting, I love being the fly on the wall, but some days I'm feeling, you know, I see an interesting character. I want to do a portrait of them. I feel a little more outgoing. I'll go meet them. Generally speaking, you know, I don't want to manipulate what's going on. I just want to see something and maybe spend time with it and... Uh, you know, occasionally, you know, because I'm shooting wide, and people know I'm there and they'll look at me and I'll do a portrait of them. But yeah, I think the, the most powerful images that I make at these things are these moments that I'm able. And because, even though I'm close, but because I'm kind of insignificant compared to what's going on, I can get away. I feel I have a bit of a cloaking device, which is something that all street photographers can use yeah. to be able to, you know, really capture the reality. Any, without... any tricks uh, of your like invisibility cloak? How, yeah. how do you, uh, well, because you know, we all have them. I know. Yeah. But, well, you know. I think uh, I think part of it is your personality. I think you have to kind of be kind. I think being a shy person is probably good training to be cloaked to a certain degree. You kind of don't want to stand out, so you want to maybe dress to fit the surroundings. That probably helps. And I think, you know, rather than try and shoot everything, you know, spend more time in fewer places, in places that have visual potential, because the more time you spend, the more, in my experience, I start to see things that I didn't see normally, and the more the surrounding starts to know I'm there and feel a little less threatened or just ignore me a little bit, and then I can get these very authentic things that happen. Sometimes the scenarios just kind of create themselves for you if you wait. Exactly, bit, you know? yeah. It's hard, to, it's hard to go wrong when you're on a Fellini set. Yeah. I, that, I imagine <laughs> that these conventions are not that much different at exactly. times. Exactly. Well, well, that was it's the so other true. thing. I mean, having, it's so true. I, I shot the, the DNC in 2004. Is okay. that where Obama gave us her speech, right? Okay. That was 2004. That was the in only Boston. one I missed. In Boston. I wish I would have oh, really? been there. Yeah. Um, so a lot of these people there are there to be seen. True. So are, are they looking for you also and they yeah. want to show their shirts and their signs? And no stuff question, like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that, you know, just the general delegates. I mean, these are people that are not sort of the players, if you will. I mean, it's, maybe on a smaller it's scale. It's their party. It's, it's their party. Yeah. And yeah, they're having a good time and they're with their people. And yeah, it's, it's all good. And, and that, that's part of it. And that's what you want to try and capture as well. So, I mean, I think that's great as well. But it's, the shots I'm after are sort of like, you know, you know, in the underground passages with maybe some familiar faces and, you know, see what's going on and see, what, see how the political process is really working, you know, different from what you see on CNN. And, yeah. You know, and, yeah. yeah. and uh, was there any uh, negativity toward you as a media member in this past convention? No, 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 there wasn't really. I mean, I think even when you go outside the convention, you start to see where the protests were happening. Uh, you know, again, people want attention. I, I didn't experience any kind of negativity. And I was sometimes on the street as a street photographer, um, you do experience that. I let it, I, I shake it off. I, I hate to see people discouraged by that. It's, again, getting out of your comfort zone. I mean, you know, I think in many ways as a street photographer outside the convention, you're, you're recording kind of history, really. This, this mm -hmm. moment is only happening once, and you're, you're doing it for the right reasons. And, you know, people, you don't know people 
that you know come up to you in a negative way. So you you have to kind of say, okay, you can't take it personally. They don't know you. They see you're just a person with a camera. They're painting you with a brush that, uh, you know, you you're you're not you haven't earned that neg negativity. So you just have to kind of you know, move forward. How many pictures did you take during the last convention? Just curious. You know, like I, yeah. I can't imagine going through a shoot like that. Yeah. Well, you know, that's the other thing, and. And I don't know if I would tell you what I think is the true number because it's a little embarrassing. <laughs> At the conventions, I had the D5 and the D500. And you guys know that they're both, you know, 10 frames per second. Rattlers, yeah. And you know what? I was just having fun. So rather than sort of go for the Cartier-Bresson decisive moment, I would do a burst of everything. I shot in excess of 40,000 frames. And, and, you know, so... Did you find the... the was it advantageous to go with short bursts yeah. as opposed to single at the end of the day? Did it make a difference for you? I think it's laziness to a certain degree. <laughs> I think I did it because I could. Um, in the end, um, you know, the frame rate is so fast that the difference between the action that I was photographing, because it wasn't, you know, intense sports that was happening really fast. It wasn't the finish line. It wasn't the finish line. I mean, I could have saved myself and, and, and practiced my timing a little bit better, but I just wanted to let myself go with it. Those two cameras are amazing, and, and I just used it in that way, and I paid the price in editing. So I would look at the burst, right. and I wouldn't have to be so specific, and as, as I always am when I'm looking at every single frame. There was, you want to catch the beginning of the blink, the middle of the blink, <laughs> It's exactly. really what it works out yeah. to. I know. It really is true. And, and, and the Frank, you know, I just, in some ways, maybe it was easier. I just go to the middle of the burst, click, that's the one. Mm. So, you know, maybe that's a, a, a school of thought. I wouldn't say to anyone to, to do that. Better to sort of, you know, go on, on, on you know, do one, one frame at a time. You don't need all that stuff. Yeah. No, but I think we've all been And there. that's insecurity, I think, yeah. too. Even after all these years, you know, by having the burst, you know you're going to get it. And, yes. And yeah, no, no there's definitely a validation. I, yeah. I understand it when yeah. you do that. Yeah. Yeah. But the editing does kill you. I that's mean, where you pay the price. And were you editing every night after? I was trying having, to, having and I was posting ready. to my blog. Uh -huh. you know, was, he uh, just finished on Tuesday, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still there Three now. people are still following. Exactly, exactly. Exactly. I'll be finished by 2020. <laughs> I think. That's, uh, that's it. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Um, Any new books coming well, up? What um, projects you're working yeah, on yeah. you want to tell well, us about? I guess uh, I'm, I'm going to update my uh, Passionate Photographer book, which, okay. which I haven't read, but it's gotten good reviews. <laughs> I did write it. So it was like 2011. It was a long time. And I'm going to update it. Um, and I do some courses on lynda.com. And right. it's been fun, and I do uh -huh. some street courses, and uh, I do workshops. So that's my, right. my thing now. I'm trying to, you know, make a living between assignments um, to and workshops, something teaching I love to do, and workshops are a fun thing that, to do. Is that all on the Passionate Yeah, the passionatephotographer.com. Okay. You can find everything there. Thank you. And how do you feel about the, the fact that so many photographers are now less assignments and more workshops. I mean, yeah, that's the reality yeah. of, the, of it. But I mean, you know, when you look at the market, I yeah. mean, I know you guys know, I mean, what are the things that are still making money? I mean, wedding, people mm -hmm. are still getting married for whatever reason. And, <laughs> and you know, teaching because, you know, I, I look at, you know, this uh, renaissance of photography that the iPhone or the phone camera has created. And I think in many ways it's helping us big picture because a lot of people are understanding and enjoying photography, and some of them are going to want to go do more than what their phone can do, and they're gonna sort of take a leap into the more serious camera. And I think they're gonna be more serious photographers, which means the market for photographers that are educating, I think, is, is good, and maybe that's just in time, because it, it's hard. I mean, the landscape is shifting, and you have to shift along with it. I wish I was more popular on Instagram and all that, because I see the ones that are, can you know announce a workshop and fill it up immediately? It's not necessarily an indication of quality, but this is the world we live in. So, I mean, we're learning. We're yeah. learning all this stuff. Yeah, um, yeah it's, you know, it's I, a I new think world. It's, I think it's, it's a new world. You got to adjust. But and do you shoot with an iPhone? Uh, yeah, I still have my iPhone. But I still you, have you, do you break it out occasionally? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I have a two-year-old, you know, uh -huh. and uh, so I, I use sense. that yeah. more than. Uh, you know, just for serendipity. I'm still waiting for that mirrorless Nikon, though. So whenever it comes, that's what I'm going to have with me. We're working on it. Okay, Trust good. Me. I, I hope so. <laughs> so. Oh, man. Well, yeah, I think. Okay. Steve Simon, thank you so much for sitting yeah. down with us. When we return, we will continue with our series, Dispatch with Adrienne O'Hanison, as she concludes the story of her trip to cover illegal mining and poaching in the Congo and how that assignment turned deadly. 
We hope you're enjoying this edition of the B&H Photography Podcast. Send us a tweet at bhphotovideo, hashtag bhphotopodcast. Adrian O'Hanneson is an award-winning freelance photographer based in Kenya, covering breaking news and long-form stories in East Africa. Recently, she was assigned to cover a story on the illegal mining and poaching activities that corrupt the Okapi Wildlife Reserve and the park rangers who do their best to deter this. On our previous segment of Dispatch, Adrian detailed her trip deep into the jungle with these ranges, and on today's, she's going to conclude the story and the nightmare that it became as the abandoned gold mine that was the ranger's base was attacked by militia members looking to reclaim their illegal mining activity. The afternoon and the evening before we began shooting um, in and around the now abandoned gold mine, we had spent sitting with various park rangers trying to get to know them. And we were looking for a good character, looking for someone who could really show and and tell what the life of a ranger was like and, and why they did this work and how it affected their families um, and their communities. And so we sat with one man who was one of the older ones in the group whose father had been a park ranger up in the north in Garumba. And he told stories of coming down to Ilipulu, where he now lived and worked out of riding an elephant with his father when he was young. And we found out later he was um, one of the rangers who also knew a lot about okapis in the park. And there has been some discussion about trying to breed okapis. And he was one of the, the few people who um, knows the animals really well and knows how to trap them safely. And keep them happily alive in captivity. So we sat and spoke with him for a while, and he was just an incredible, kind of an old wise man sort of character. But we ended up finding one of the rangers who had been there when the mine had been closed down. And that was really exciting because, you know, in this sort of situation, you're you're seeing the after effects. So we needed someone to say, you know, this is what the place looked like when it was an operational gold mine. And so he could kind of describe what the scene looked like, how many people were there. He told us about basically an entire village that had moved into this area inside the reserve. And, you know, we're looking at probably maybe up to a thousand people, maybe more in the surrounding areas all camped out inside of the reserve um, to gold mine or some people even just come to serve food and, and tea or alcohol, whatever people may need. So it really is a little village that springs up. So we met this character and um, he started telling us all about what the mine was like before the rangers um, came in. Uh couple of months prior um, to when we were there to close down this illegal gold mine. So we had decided that the next day we would um, get up early in the morning and start filming just around the camp um, and then follow, follow this ranger around the abandoned mine now so he could kind of relive how, um, how it was shut down so he could show this on camera, um, where things used to happen, where people used to dig, where people used to wash the gold, um, the paths through the jungle that people used to access the mine. And so that was the plan for the next morning. So we pitched our tents and went to bed and woke up early and it was still kind of rainy and misty in the morning when we woke up and, yeah, you know, filmed a bit around the camp, um, people waking up, cooking, lighting the fire, and just started out on our day following this park ranger down into the mine. He described how the rangers came in and gave people a warning, um, informed them that where they were inside of the park and that they couldn't mine inside of this area. This was a protected area. And they gave them a day, I believe, um, if I remember correctly, to clear the area. This was a mine that people thought was quite valuable. So, yeah, they slowly pushed people out of this area, um, burnt a lot of the remaining belongings that was there. You could see on the ground there were remnants of burnt tarps or beer bottles or, you know, cigarette packages, anything 
um, kind of that would be left over. That's typically, I guess, what the rangers do when they shut the mines down. If there's anything remaining um, that people haven't taken with them, they just put it in a pile and burn it. And so you could see that's what had happened in this mine. Um, and so ever since then, the the rangers had been posted up on this small hill outside of, I can't even say it was outside of the mine. It's really kind of in the center of the mine. And yeah, all around this hill, it, these holes where people had been digging and these small footpaths um, that just led out into the jungle. So we had spent the whole morning photographing and doing video, which I always find challenging to do, to do both. Um, and a bit frustrating too, because I'll, I'll be shooting video and see a good still image, but then want to keep filming. And it's a constant little battle in my mind. It's like there's a videographer woman in one side of my brain and a photography woman on the other side of the brain. And they're, they're arguing as to who gets to capture the best footage. Um, so that's always, I remember being a bit frustrated that morning because I was thinking, wow, you got some really great video, but I didn't take any photographs. And it's like, oh, I wish I had had that one scene. We're down in kind of a low-lying area where these all these small puddles and there are these beautiful reflections in the puddles of the of the forest and there's this one ranger standing in the middle of this um, kind of sea of puddles. So I'm still kind of upset I didn't get that image, but we planned that afternoon to go out with the same ranger um, to look at some of the poaching um, that's being done in the area. Um, part of that, actually, that trip was not only to look at the illegal poaching, but also to look at some of the trapping that the um, pygmies do in the area because the pygmies are actually allowed to hunt um, in traditional ways um, inside of the reserve. So we planned to go out and look at some of the ways in which the pygmies trapped um, small game inside of the reserve. We wrapped up the morning shoot and walked back up to the camp. Um, and again, it's not a not a long walk. It's literally the length of a gigantic tree that had fallen. Um, and it had fallen in such a way that you could walk up the entire trunk of the tree and that met pretty much with the top of the hill. So we made our way up that tree trunk to the top of the camp and um, put all our belongings down and you're sweaty and your gear is a bit sweaty and um, run out of water by that point in time. It was late morning. We hadn't been out too long filming. And so I put all my gear down and um, kind of discussed the plan for the afternoon to go out to see some of the poaching activities. And we had planned to leave the camp again at four in the afternoon. So we had some time to hang out. We were a bit tired from the day before because we just hiked in quite a ways. I'd taken off most of my gear except for my camera and um, pure, I was purifying water. So I had um, my phone was out and I had water bottles or my Nalgene there timing water tablets and had divided up some of the beans into different meals that we would eat. And again, we're spending time with the rangers and, and filming a bit um, the activities around the camp. Just before four in the afternoon, because we planned to leave at four um, and we hadn't eaten yet. So I was getting a bit antsy because I didn't want to miss the, the nice afternoon light. Um, so I was actually bent over the fire and um, I had removed my cameras. I had flip-flops on just walking around the camp relaxing and I heard gunshots and I didn't just hear gunshots. They were right in front of me and my two colleagues had been a few steps away um, and I immediately saw them start to run and everyone in the camp started to run. I also turned and ran and the gunshots were quite close. Um, the shooters were quite close. By the time I ran to the edge of the hill and turned around just to make sure. I'm thinking back on it now, I should have just kept running, but I had this thought of, I need to look behind me and make sure that my colleagues are safe. I looked on the ground because I had assumed if anyone had been shot, that's where they would be. Looked on the ground, no one was on the ground behind me and turned around again to run and looked over to my right and could see the attackers already in the camp. Um, 
and just ran. And I, I saw some of the rangers in front of me running. Some people were throwing themselves down um, the side of the small hill. But I didn't know the area as well as a lot of these other people. So my first reaction was just to get somewhere safe away from the gunfire. I was trying to figure out, maybe I was thinking too much of what the best strategy would be to get myself safe. And so I found, I guess it might have been about halfway down this little hill that we were on. I saw a couple of deep holes and I thought, well, I can go down there and, and get cover from the gunfire. And I looked in one and didn't didn't look quite deep enough. And I saw another that was um, quite deep and I was scared to jump down because I might hurt myself. And so I found kind of a medium-sized hole. Um, and of course, this is all happening very quickly. It sounds like a bit of a Goldilocks story. So I jumped in this medium-sized hole and... Um, by then, there had been return gunfire from the rangers. So again, I was at this point kind of in crossfire. And I was just thinking I need to get um, below ground as soon as possible just to to get away from the the fire. The biggest issue at this point for me was I just don't know this area very well. This was my first time in Congo. My French isn't good enough to understand what's going on around me. My Swahili is a bit better, and people there speak kind of a mix of the two. Um, so the combination of not knowing the place well and not being able to understand the language uh, made it that much more frightening. Um, but I jumped in this hole and kind of tried to dig myself back into the ground. Um, and I just curled up in a ball. I had lost my shoes while I was running, so I just had on a T-shirt and a headband and a scarf. And I didn't know what the strategy was going to be here. There was a lot of gunfire. I could hear that the attackers had taken over our camp and I could hear that the park rangers were now pushed back into the jungle, firing back. And at that point, I just stayed curled in a ball. I was on my left side and waited and hid and tried to stay as quiet as possible. It seemed like the gunfire just continued straight. I know it probably wasn't constant, but gunfire was still going back and forth um, until long after dark. And if anyone in the surrounding areas made any noises, the people who had taken over the camp, the militia, would just open fire into, into the rainforest. And I don't think I slept at all that night. And I tried to think about you know, could I get out of this hole maybe now that it was dark? But I I literally put my hand in front of my face and it was so dark, I couldn't see a thing. And the foliage is so thick, you can hardly see the sky and just blocked out any light. And of course, we're miles and miles from any towns with electricity. So I just waited. I was, um, again, didn't know the strategy here. Who were these people? Were they there to just rob us? Were they there to reclaim the territory? So were these people here to stay? I just didn't know. And I didn't feel like it was safe to go at night where I could, again, fall into a deep hole and injure myself. So all of these scenarios were just going through my mind while I was there. And I didn't want to make any noise. I didn't want anyone to know my location. And it's the kind of soil where if you just knock a piece with your hand, it'll kind of cave in and you'll get um, this small avalanche of stones that make, um, again, make a lot of noise, especially somewhere uh, in the forest where everything is just done by by sound. So I stayed crouched, um, not even crouched, lying on my left side in this hole and, until the sun came up the next morning. And I was so relieved to see um, kind of the background behind the leaves above my head begin to lighten. And at this point I was thinking, okay, maybe the people who have taken over this camp have left. Um, I was just hoping that they were there to rob and that they would take the belongings that were still in the camp and leave. Um, but I could hear people in the camp the next morning and that really frightened me because the only thing I could think of was that they were here to stay. They were here to reclaim territory. They were here to 
take over this gold mine again, which they had lost. And so again, I was just thinking, okay, what are, what are the options here? Um, and I was listening to the, the people in the camp and I could hear them walking around and could hear them digging through pieces of the tents and they would throw things down off of the hill that they didn't need or didn't want, or maybe they were just bored. I don't know. I think one of them took a bath quite near, um, where I was hiding. And by bath, I mean just buckets, uh, like a bucket shower, just dumping buckets of water. So some of the water was even falling into the hole I was hiding in. I was quite close. At that point, I started to convince myself that they knew I was there and they were just kind of, I don't know, torturing me a bit by, you know, throwing water into the hole or throwing items from the camp down around where I was hidden. I heard them eat a pack of cookies that I had brought, that I had um, specifically bought a couple days before in one of the towns. Um, and I could hear the crinkling of this packet, and then I could kind of hear them finishing the cookies. Um, and then everything went silent, and I didn't hear any more voices. I didn't hear any more crackers or crinkling of cookie packaging. Um, and I just thought, okay, I don't hear anything. I think it'll be safe to get out. I tried to stand up for the first time and I couldn't because I had been crouched in, the, in a ball for the last, I don't know how long, 20 hours or so maybe. And so it was quite hard for me to, to get up at first. I was very dizzy. I hadn't eaten or drank anything. I didn't really have anything on me as well. I had a scarf and my headband, which I had covered my head at night with a headband and I'd wrap my arms in the scarf. But other than that, I had a my belt on, which had some toilet paper and a couple of camera batteries in it. I really had nothing. I had no shoes. And then I realized, it wasn't until then I realized how deep this hole really was, because I felt like I was very close to the surface. Um, but I stood up and realized this, I had actually jumped into something quite deep. I was about twice my height. And um, so I had to figure out how to pull myself up. I finally grabbed a branch and, and pulled myself up with my arms out of this hole and um, looked up into the camp, didn't see anything and stayed really low to the ground and slowly made my way down the side of this hill. And I knew that once I reached the forest, I was a bit safer. Um, again, because the jungle is just so thick that you can't really see very far ahead of you. And that comforted me. That comforted me a lot. Um, I had walked in the opposite direction that the attackers had originally come. And that was also the direction that many of the park rangers had fled. So the reasoning in my head, at least, was that the militia that had attacked us wouldn't be so bold as to come down the side of the hill where the rangers had fled and wouldn't be so bold as to wander into that part of the forest but I didn't know. I just, um, honestly, I was so happy just to be free from that hole that um, it wasn't such um, a big concern of mine at that point. I just needed to move and I needed to get away from um, the place where I had just had this horrific experience. So I had an idea of the direction we had come in from. And I just thought, okay, if I walk in that direction, maybe I'll uh, eventually hit the river uh, where we we had crossed the previous day, and then from there, as long as you're near near a river, you can usually find other people. And so that was my my strategy. I was also trying to follow some of the small footpaths, and so I was looking at the prints of people's feet or of people's boots. And I had known that some of the rangers had been wearing a certain kind of boot. Um, they're just rubber rubber boots, very plain rubber boots, but when they're one of the few things that you can find in some of the markets. There's like this one kind of flip-flop and these one kind of rubber boots. And I actually know the prints of, of both of these from spending quite a lot of time in the region. And so I could tell which boot prints belonged to the rangers, or I at least knew that these were the most recent boot prints. And I had to figure that the most recent boot prints were of some of the rangers that had been with me and had recently evacuated the area. I don't know how many hours I walked for. I think it was quite a lot, but I was just so eager to keep moving. 
and I was very confident that I was going in the right direction. And I came across a big clearing, so I kind of, I got really excited by the clearing because I knew that a clearing meant people. And so I scurried to the edge of this clearing and looked out and I realized that what I had done was I had done a gigantic loop around and I had ended up back at the gold mine. This was a great thing and this was a horrible thing. This was a great thing for me because at least I could get my bearings. This was a horrible thing for me because then I suddenly realized that I was quite close to the place that I had just escaped from. So I had spent most of the day just wandering around and ended up back at the same location that I was before. But this ended up being a good thing because I could orient myself again. So I reoriented myself. I found the path that we had originally used to access the gold mine and started following that out in the opposite direction. It had been probably close to 24 hours that I had been alone, no food, no water, no shoes. Um, I was in quite rugged condition. Um, I found it somehow entertaining because I, I did feel just like one of these people on a Survivor TV show. Um, and I had to kind of laugh at myself for just looking almost so ridiculous. I looked like I could have been in the forest for months, but it had only been a day. And there was a certain point where I just couldn't find the right path to lead me out. And I just was unsure about which direction to walk in. And I think part of that was starting to be a bit dehydrated, but also exhausted. I hadn't slept. I just decided that I was going to stay close to the gold mine because I just assumed that someone would be coming up and down that main path. And at this point in time, I was thinking, okay, it's going to get dark. I'm going to spend another night in the jungle. I need to build a shelter for the night and I need to stay close to where people might be looking for me. And so I did, I took a bit of a break, sat down under a big tree and tried to figure out what I was going to build for a shelter. And I also had, actually, I had water purification tablets on me. So I started making big cups out of some leaves and I had planned to go collect some water and purify water in my leaf cups. I guess I had fully gone into survival mode at that point. And then I heard voices and some of them were coming from the direction of the camp. And I was terrified because I just thought, okay, this is the same militia that's come back. They're, they're not going to leave the area. And then I heard some other voices coming from along the path. And then I saw some people moving up the path. And I'm not sure I identified these people as being safe before I just walked out into the path. But I felt like in my head, I knew that these were safe individuals because they were walking on the main path. They were walking in a line. They didn't seem to try to be hiding, as I assumed a militia would be. But again, these were all assumptions I, I was making at the time. So I stepped out in the path right in front of them with my hands up, trying not to scare them, and then recognized uh, one of the men that was with the group had been uh, a ranger we had interviewed a couple days before at the main base. And so he recognized me, I recognized him, and I could tell from the faces of the, the rangers. And at this point, there were some Congolese military with this group that had been out searching for me. I could tell from their faces they were shocked and very relieved to see me in such good condition. The events after this get a bit hazy for me because it's funny how quickly you can go from being in survival mode and, and being 100%, 150% switched on. All of your senses are heightened and you're really not even thirsty or hungry because you're just so focused on the immediate things, being safe first and foremost, being aware of your surroundings. And so the minute that I felt safe, you also feel tired, um, exhausted, confused. You have time to think about all the things that have happened. And so when I met this group of rangers, all of a sudden you kind of just want to turn into a big baby. You want to be taken care of. Just rescue me and take me out. 
but that's not how it went. And I'm very thankful that it went the way it did because I think especially on this continent, Africa has its own ways of operating and you need to be open to that. You need to, and you need to listen to that and pay attention to how this place operates, meaning the whole continent, but just the pace at which life progresses and the ways in which people deal with certain processes, especially around um, death, which is what the next day or so turned into for me. And it, it teaches you a lot. And it's not how I would have dealt with things in my own culture, but it's how things operate in Congo and how the pace of life progresses. And I think it's really important to recognize that pace and to respect that pace. And at the end of the day, I think the slow nature of how the next days developed was very helpful in processing what had happened. So as soon as I met these rangers, they had insisted that we return to the camp. And I was absolutely terrified of going back to the camp. I had heard people still on the hill And so it didn't occur to me that since I had been wandering in the jungle that the military had gone and um, secured the hill again. So there were no longer any people from the militia on the hill. So they were trying to convince me to go back up to the camp where these shooters had just come in the day before. And I was just shaking my head looking at these guys like, you've got to be are you crazy? I'm not going back up there. But they really pushed me to go back up. And again, we walked back up the very same tree trunk that I had walked up the previous morning after we got done filming back up into the camp, which was now not destroyed, but trees were shattered from bullets. All of the belongings were gone. There were still some tarps left over. There were still, I mean, the where the rangers slept, it was just tarps and basically little wooden huts that they had lived in before. So some of those were still standing. Some were pierced by bullets. You could see holes in the tarps and everything that I had brought was gone, except for my shoes. I actually got my shoes back. I'm convinced it's because they didn't fit any of the men who came into the camp, but I can't be certain but went back up into the camp and um, of course the first things I was asking people are my colleagues safe, are the rangers safe how many people did we lose what happened at that point in time we were still missing three other people I found out that my colleagues were safe I was not yet sure if our Congolese journalist and fixer that was working with us was safe but we had lost five people, we had lost four rangers and a porter I believe that they were shot almost immediately when the attack happened. And again, they their remains were still in the camp when I came back. And now the camp was, was full of military and rangers who had been sent out in search of the missing people, including myself, but also sent out to secure the area. So I took a quick shower, bath, bucket shower, The soldiers even heated up some water for me, so I took uh, a warm shower, which was incredible. And I found some clothes of our fixer and fellow Congolese journalists who had been there and put on his clean clothes that I'd just found scattered around the camp because my clothes were quite disgusting at that point. And I was just, just laying down to take some rest, and the sun had just gone down at this point. And another group of military came up and said, no, actually, we're, we're taking you out now. We have orders to get you out of the forest tonight. And so just as I was starting to relax a bit, we had to set off again into the forest to try to get back to the ranger's base that my colleagues were at. Still at this point in time, no one had been contacted because we're out in the middle of the bush. No one had a satellite phone. My satellite phone had been taken no one knew still going into the next night where I was, if I was safe, what had happened. So we started to hike out and I, my feet were in really bad condition because I'd walked all day with bare feet. 
but luckily had my shoes that that survived the attack and strapped those to my feet and had two pairs of pants on and made the trek out. So we left, I guess, just after sunset and didn't arrive. I didn't walk back into the ranger's base until four o'clock the next morning. So I guess that was the, the second night in a row that I didn't have any sleep. And I'd put my muddy clothes over the clean clothes for extra warmth and um, wandered back in to the ranger's camp. And nobody knew I was coming, so I, I just kind of showed up. And of course, everyone was very happy to see me and started making phone calls out right away that uh, I was safe and back at base. It's always difficult when a crisis like this happens because you can't just focus on the horrible things that have happened. You can't just focus on the fact that five lives were lost. You are forced to focus on the logistics of the situation. And so from the time I got back, it was all about how do we, how do we get out? We lost all of our equipment, all of our gear, our passports. How does this work logistically? How do we get out safely? And quickly at that point, we were still trying to figure out why the attack had happened. But first and foremost, we needed to make sure we were out, we were safe, and how that was all going to work. And so the next day or so was, was all about that. And during that time, the remains of those killed in the attack were brought back into the town. And we had planned just to go to the site of the remains. Um, three of the five bodies were brought back into the town, into the base where the rangers were posted. We had planned just to go and, and pay our respects to to the bodies, to the coffins that were now displayed for the entire town or surrounding towns to come and visit. And so that had kind of been the plan was to go and make an appearance out of respect to the community and to the rangers. What ended up happening was that soon after we arrived, the coffins were carried to, to the burial ground, which was just outside of the town. We got caught up in that and we followed and went all the way to the burial ground and put three of the four rangers that were killed into the ground. I had lost my cameras. I had lost everything besides my shoes and had borrowed one of my colleagues' cell phones that, that made it out and just started photographing and was able to be there with the families as the caskets were lowered into the ground and be there with the youth group as one of their friends was lowered into the ground and be there with some of the rangers who had been in the attack with us and to photograph it and to show, in fact, why I was there. Um, I was there to document this cycle of violence. And in this circumstance, we were caught up in the very violence that continues to plague this area. And it doesn't make it okay, but I think for a moment there was an understanding between the foreign journalists, the community, the rangers. We all knew that this violence happens and it happens often. And just to pay our respects in our own ways. And the way that I could do that was to be there and document these people who lost their lives doing their work, which is to be a, a park ranger and protect the reserve. We'll never know if this was something that was specifically targeted because there were foreigners there, but from discussing with the rangers and even from discussing with militias in this area, it seemed like this had been a planned attack regardless of whether or not we were there and we were present there. Uh, but again, we'll never know. And I think the important thing for me was to be there and to witness and to photograph. 
Thank you, Adrian. And we've come to an end of another great episode. You can find more of Steve Simon's work at thepassionatephotographer.com and more of Adrian's work at adrianohannison.com. And of course, you can find all of our episodes at bnh.com slash explorer on the iTunes podcast app, on SoundCloud, and on many Android platforms, including Stitcher and Player FM. And of course, we encourage you to subscribe. Okay, next week, we will be taking a break. But when we return on October 19th, we have several incredible episodes lined up, including a conversation on rock and roll photography with the great Lynn Goldsmith, a roundtable on the history of hip-hop photography, and an in-depth episode on bird photography. We're also going to be hosting a subscription drive that includes a survey and gear giveaways. So we encourage you to subscribe to our show on iTunes and encourage you to encourage your friends and colleagues to do the very same. As always... Thanks to John Harris, Jason Tables, and I'm Alan Weitz, and thank you so much for tuning in today. 